This episode of Energy Sense is brought to you by our Financial and Capital Markets Energy Advisory Group, part of S&P Global Commodity Insights. Our team of experts provides the investment community with actionable insight and integrated thought leadership that identify the trends and trend makers of global energy markets. Solutions cover the full energy and natural resources sector, from traditional fossil fuels to emerging clean tech ideas and supply chains, and are available via recurring reports, webinars, robust data sets, and personalized engagements with experts. All right, welcome back to Energy Sense, an S&P Global podcast covering all topics on the intersection of energy and finance. This is your host, Hill Vaden, and I am here today again with Kareem Fawaz to talk about oil markets. Kareem, how are you? Good. Thanks for having me, Hill. How are you? I am doing well, and we are talking on November 18th, about two and a half, three days before the World Cup. So before we get into oil markets, I'm going to ask you if the U.S. makes it out of group, because I think by the time this podcast goes live, the U.S. will have either made it out of group or not made it out of group. It's either the U.S. or Iran. There can only be one. <laughs> so, so. so you're saying England, U.S. and and or Iran? I mean, I would think the U.S. to make it out of the group, but you never know. That's very safe. You're not going to go on, on record. <laughs> on, on, on record, boxing for U.S. soccer? Nah, not yet. <laughs> All right. Well, in other Middle Eastern-centric conversations, let's talk about oil markets since I can't pin you down on that. So the the oil mar- oil markets has obviously gone about a, a profound shift this year on the back of the Russia-Ukraine conflict. And there's a lot of things still in the works as we get out of 2022, but I, maybe you can help set up the conversation discussing some of the, the structural changes that price yeah. formation and oil markets more broadly have gone through this year? Yeah, I think that's kind of a theme we've been focusing a lot on over the past couple of quarters. Obviously, supply-demand fundamentals and prices are still kind of very important as you assess oil markets, but we've been trying to spend a lot more time in the past two or three quarters since the invasion started, thinking more about how oil prices are set, about the process of price formation, and really the building blocks of the market because a lot of the assumptions that kind of underpin the process the the kind of the evolution of oil really since the embargoes in the 70s are kind of coming are coming apart at the seams in ways that people kind of might not be realizing when you can follow them independently so if you think about it kind of the oil market has been in a process of i would say managed globalization pretty consistently since, since the 70s You've had development of a fungible spot-traded markets. You've had the rise of financial benchmarks. You've had the financialization of oil more meaningfully through the early 2000s. So you're, you're in this, you have kind of followed this process of consistent, consistent globalization over the past five decades, really, of the history mm-hmm. of the oil market to the point where it became the kind of core commodity. It's a hedging mechanism for the industry. It's a hedging mechanism for the global economy, or it was at least at a certain point. Central banks used it. The kind of it was. There was a sense that oil markets are a kind of a relatively well understood physical commodity with clear and understandable ties into the global economy and relationships to the global economy. What's interesting is that process was built, at least in my in our view, uh, on kind of 
clear geopolitical and regional foundations or pillars that over time got maybe to some extent underestimated that kind of laid the foundation for that process of globalization. One of them was the U.S.-Saudi relationship and the U.S.-Saudi oil for security arrangement, however you want to call it, which basically created OPEC or allowed OPEC, Saudi kind of Saudi-led OPEC, as a market stabilizing group uh, mm-hmm. uh, to avoid catastrophic physical and price scenarios. So you had that stabilizing force, which existed in large part because of that U.S.-Saudi relationship. And the, the supply for world, security, I guess before we get into the second exactly. one, the supply security being that the world can count on the Saudis to provide enough supply to manage the economy, and Saudis can count on the U.S. to be sure that that supply moves around the world more or less in a row. And, and more than that, that Saudi Arabia itself has its security needs met, regional, military, etc. Okay. Uh, that kind of quid pro quo, if you want, was one of the building blocks of how OPEC has remained a big part of the oil market even after the embargoes and through the last 30 years is basically the concept that OPEC was a market stabilizing force and that that relationship was going to continue to be that way, which obviously that is coming under severe strain of late, especially since the OPEC cuts last month. The second is that there are real baseload flows, dedicated flows in the market like Russia to Europe, Middle East to Asia, that kind of leave markets liquid, but not unwieldy. So it's not like you have constantly a whole 40, 50 million barrels a day system being traded actively on a monthly basis. You have these core relationships that define the physical market environment. And that suddenly is changing quite dramatically on the Russia to Europe front Mm -hmm. with the rupture of that whole vector of trade. And then the third one is, consumers accepting to be price takers, which is the as long as the oil market has been there, consumers have largely been price takers and producers in one shape or form have been price kind of price makers. Mm-hmm. Uh, as long as energy security needs were managed, so going back to the U.S.-Saudi relationship, and, and the only difference has been kind of build up of the SPRs over the latter part of the 70s and through the early 2000s, which was really meant to as a tool in acute emergencies, but not for active management of oil markets. Obviously, that is changing as well. Over the past 12 months, we've seen degrees of intervention by consuming uh, countries, including the United States, to levels that we've never seen before. And that takes the form of whether it's the SPR releases, whether it's imposing sanctions on Russia, which a couple of years ago would have sounded crazy to even mm-hmm. think about, one of the largest exporters of oil in the world, and the price cap. So basically, you have consumers, and you're seeing it not just in oil, by the way. We're talking about oil today, but on the gas side, obviously, Europe is quite actively looking at ways to influence and drive and control the prices of natural gas into the continent. So this is not just a U.S oil intervention story. It's a broader redefining of consumers understanding that they can have an influence on prices that don't have to be kind of strictly price takers and their mechanisms are just to plead with producers for whatever they need. And Uh, and that's a major one. So the U.S., the the SPR, Strategic Petroleum Reserve, the the U.S. has been releasing barrels in the market since what, May or June or or about then? Earlier even earlier. 
and, and then has started talking to, to imply that, that more barrels could come into the market and there could be future releases in the coming weeks or months. Are there other strategic, significant strategic petroleum reserves globally that other countries that, that can influence with the actual physical commodity like the U.S. can? None at the scale as, as the U.S. from a vo volume standpoint. So the rest of the OECD members, Europe, Asia, do have uh, SPR, and they do still have capacity under the SPR releases they announced earlier this year under the IEA facility to continue releasing through the winter if they need to. So there is some capacity there. And I would say in Europe, it's interesting because they have more refined products, strategic inventories, as opposed to the U.S. that's 100% crude. So the refined products, which given what's happening in the diesel market in particular, that's quite useful and will, and will continue to be for Europe through the winter. But at a macro global market scale, the U.S. is still the largest, by far the largest SPR reserve. And that's probably the most likely to be that can have an impact in price formation at a, at a global level. And it goes both ways, by the way. So. You're right. I mean, they've been continuing to allude to potential additional releases through the end of the year. But the U.S. has also been actively trying to figure out a way to use the SPR, the refilling of the SPR that's going to be necessary pretty soon after uh, in the next couple of years to be used as a mechanism to provide some level of price certainty to domestic producers. Right. There, they've kind of telegraphed a, a fixed price refill around 67 to 72 dollars a barrel as kind of that that floor or the implicit floor they want to be providing below which they'll buy for the SPR. But it's kind that, of influencing both sides of that equation, of that price formation equation. So, so the, the, the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, the presence of that as a filled mechanism to either physically release or even talk about being released adds a level of comfort to the oil market, right, and, and prevents right. some level of upside, and, and the same at a larger degree is a spare capacity within right. OPEC. So the SPR is, I guess, reading conventional headlines in newspapers, the SPR is at levels that are what down to like 82, 1982, or decades low levels. But when do we get to a point where it becomes a, a discomfort to oil markets in, in terms of SPR volumes? I think there's still enough SPR volume and on an absolute basis. So yes, mm -hmm. if you look at it from a historical comparison basis, and every and every month and every week we draw is going to be a new record because you're basically turning back the clock a few months back from the last point you're comparing to. So you're going to keep pushing back and back. Uh, so if you think about it versus the highs, take the US SPR for example, which was at highs of north of 700 million barrels a couple of years ago. Now we're kind of around 400 million barrels or so. Or at least that's kind of where we're headed. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yes, we've declined a lot, but we're not yet at an alarming level. But I mean, the market is fairly alarmed, I would say, regardless of what the SPR levels are. So I don't think the degree of comfort provided to markets by the existence of the SPR, I think, has eroded to some extent. But I think the SPR... The, the the spare capacity component, the kind of continuous, at the end of the day, the SPR was a short-term relief right. think, or understood as such. The spare capacity component is that you're running at a relatively low level of continuous capacity in the market, and that's a more structural concern because and that's you OPEC. do have... So, exactly. And that's the OPEC spare capacity. Arabia, the OPEC spare capacity, yeah, and largely Saudi Arabia and the UAE, as things stand. Interestingly, yeah.
kind of become very concentrated in those two countries. And so where are we so, in terms of that either comfort level or absolute balance in terms of spare capacity and what directionally are we working toward knowing that there's this Russian question hanging out there that we'll get into a, later in this conversation? Yeah, I mean, from a risk perception standpoint, like risks are acute, obviously, on the supply side. You're, you're in a relatively low spare capacity environment. The OPEC cuts in, announced last month were going to restore some measure of spare capacity, which is a positive takeaway from that decision. Even though it's going to tighten physical markets, it will kind of restore another five, 700,000 barrels a day of spare capacity in the system in case things get worse in a hurry uh, in the next few months that could potentially be deployed. But from an anxiety standpoint, the supply anxiety is really traditionally it's amplified depending on the demand and macro environment. What's happening now is you have these offsetting forces. You have real credible kind of supply anxiety drivers out there, including low spare capacity, including the fact that we've drawn down 210 to 220 million barrels of U.S. SPR inventories barely to hold U.S. commercial stocks flat through the year. So we it's taken... Huge effort just to hold still through the last six months. Once that runs out, what happens? So you have a lot of those concerns still there. I think it's being counterbalanced, at least in the short term, by the broader economic and macro slowdown, which since the last time we spoke has accelerated quite significantly. I think demand data themselves have not been as dire or, or catastrophic as people feared early in the summer. We had some blips in July, but for the most part, demand is eroding, but not collapsing. Mm -hmm. uh, but kind of from a macro and uh, from a macroeconomic environment standpoint, you still have a very strong drag that's offsetting that supply anxiety. If that demand picture reverses or the China recovery goes a, a bit further from the aspirational or conceptual, which is the stage work, and now to tangible signs of improvement, which might be a while away, but uh, you kind of you can get back to that anxiety taking over. And we've seen it a number of times, not just in the past few years, but when you hit that low spare capacity, high anxiety nexus, uh, prices tend to, to re respond very strongly, very quickly, like they did actually in March of, of this year. When the China is somewhat there's a demand constraint that is somewhat managed as opposed to uh, unmanaged in the sense that it's COVID restrictions that are largely, if not the majority, to demand moderation from China. The main challenge with China is separating the domestic end user demand from what's happening in terms of their crude sector, which is really a question of regulation and, and the extent to which the government allows those refiners to export. So obviously, end user demand has been hit quite directly by COVID containment and domestic demand declines because of the economic slowdown. So you had that double whammy. You had domestic demand be under pressure quite significantly. The crude side is where we've seen the more violent swings. Is really crude imports, Chinese crude imports slowed dramatically through the summer. They were down two to two and a half million barrels a day for a couple of months, which is, that's really demand destruction, if you want to think about it that way. That was, a and in retrospect, a critical reason why the market weathered the summer as well, I would say, or depending on how you look at it, as comfortably as it did, as opposed to what people were really afraid of coming into the late spring and early summer, which was that you're going to keep drawing very fast and we wouldn't be able to handle it. That Chinese slowdown was 
really critical in the sense that it allowed the, the market some breathing room. But since then, the crude demand has been picking up. Domestic refinery runs have been picking up. The government has allocated increased product export quotas to domestic refiners. So you are seeing crude demand in China recover. But in order for that recovery to have legs, I would say, on a sustainable basis, you need at the end of the day, the end user demand, domestic demand to pick back up. Mm-hmm. And that's where the reopening matters. And that's where the dynamic zero COVID evolving into whatever it's uh, next incarnation is becomes so critical. But the, from my standpoint, looking at it from a crude and global market, the question I try to answer more is understanding domestic downstream policy and the extent to which crude demand is going to keep holding. And we believe it will, at least through next year, keep rising. Does that assume what, what's the level of global economic activity behind that assumption on the idea that the, the world is slowing as, as rates increase and China is an export engine. And so let, let's say China lifts all COVID restrictions. Is the global economy churning at such a rate that oil demand or, or that our expectations for oil demand come in perhaps higher? Or... It helps. I mean, it helps. It, might, it definitely helps, right? I mean, it helps beyond just China itself. It basically is a source of relief to the global economy. And there's like, it's a positive virtual circle. The problem mm-hmm. on, on, on demand is that the pressures on demand are as much economic as they are fuel availability specific, whether it's diesel into Europe or in the, in the Northeast, pushing those product prices higher and higher and refining margins through the roof. So there is a counterbalancing effect. It will certainly help if it helps, if it kind of compounds slowing increases in interest rates, potentially some stabilization of the European situation post-winter. Once you get through the kind of the, the, the winter energy anxiety, the next three, four months, you could potentially see more relief there. So yes, there is a pathway, but the, from everything we're looking at, our economists are kind of forecasting, we're still heading into a pretty extended period of, of low growth here through next year. The the, growth, the GDP growth we are embedding in our base forecast for global GDP is is down to 2% annually in 2023, okay. which is down, from, it was north of three coming into this year. Our 2022 forecasts were north of 4% coming into this year. We're now looking at low threes, not even uh, mid twos, uh, mid twos to low threes. I haven't checked the latest numbers, but that economic slowdown is meaningful. But the kind of, the as you think about it from an oil market standpoint, though, it's mm-hmm. also important to remember that it was kind of an arrested recovery to some extent. Mm-hmm. We were in the process of recovering from the pandemic in terms of global consumption, global jet travel, global airline travel, global jet demand, global global economic growth. And the fourth quarter of last year was really the first quarter where we saw real meaningful moves towards the pre-COVID normals in, in a lot of sectors. So, I mean, you're working off a pretty low base is, is the bottom line here. We've eroded demand significantly through this year, but it's difficult once you're this far below trend, which we are, it's very difficult to see, let me put it this way. I think the downside risk to demand is probably much smaller than the downside risk to supply from an order of magnitude standpoint. So heading into the Russia disruption, heading into whatever is happening with OPEC and how OPEC decides to monetize or push for higher prices through the next six months or nine months, the supply factors are such that the range of outcomes 
on that side of the ledger, I think we believe going forward is probably far greater than the incremental downside from economic pressure, unless you do have a financial crisis at a much larger scale. So obviously, if you do have a severe global economic recession and global economic crisis, there's more downside there for demand. But I think absent that, it feels like to some extent the market has slipped into some type uh, into some measure of kind of false equivalence between uh, between supply risk and demand risk just because of the level of uncertainty in the market this year but from where we stand today looking forward to december 5th until kind of the winter it just in my mind feels like an overestimation of demand risk and probably an underestimation of supply risk so talk about the supply risks a, a little bit more. The oil spiked uh, on, on the back of the Ukraine evasion to, what, 140 or 150 or something or this year and, and has moderated since then. How much oil has actually left the market? I think that spike was more on fears that oil was going to leave the market rather right. than, and then oil didn't actually leave the market to quite the degree that people, it just went to a different place. It went to India, it went to China, right. it went to Turkey, but right. people were still able to fill up their cars. Phase one was really a rerouting. Basically, it was the first phase of the rerouting of Russian oil from certain destinations to new destinations. So basically, what used to be refined products coming to U.S., stuff coming to the U.S., what used to be crude imports into Europe that have been eroding through the year, and those have been backfilled by by India. So that first phase of, of the crisis, actually, you're right. The net flow of oil from Russia to the global market has not decreased significantly. We went from probably mid to high 10 million barrels a day range. We might have hit 11 million barrels a day briefly before the invasion. We're now normalizing, depending on the month, in the mid mid 10 million barrels a day range. So 500,000 barrels a day mm-hmm. loss, which in a normal year and a normal balance, I would say is a large disruption in the context of what markets were afraid of in, this, in kind of March, April, and the fears of back when it was a concern self-sanctioning and will they be able to find new buyers, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, relatively mild. That said, the real risk is I consider what's happened so far this year to have been a relatively mild or very mild sanction environment, sanctioning environment for, for on Russia from an oil flow standpoint. To a large extent, anyone who wanted Russian oil could get Russian oil using any insurance they want, any ship they want, going anywhere they want, except for the U.S., which is the only country that unwound all Russian imports. So to some extent, you're seeing some people or or some some reporting describe it as this great victory uh, for Russia, kind of upending, uh, kind of countering the, the West pressures but at the end of the day the oil pressure the oil war hasn't really started yet and if anything that opening battle on on the oil front is probably what's going to coming up here in, on, in december when the eu bans go into effect and if you think about the eu bans there's two parts we've talked about it before so there's two parts there's crude there's refined products one in december one in february and within those two bans there's the EU portion of it, that the EU as a as a group will stop importing oil from, from Russia. And then the third party component of it, which is the provision of insurance and financing mm-hmm. services to shipments of, of Russian oil to third party buyers, which is the more pervasive component of the sanctions, actually, from a volume standpoint. And that's the part that's still being, and that's where the price cap comes in. That's where the uncertainty is about enforcement, about mechanisms, about 
whether the ships are going to be there. So there's a whole world. So the, the European component of it, especially on the crude side, I think if you think about it in two pieces, which I talked about, the Europeans buying Russian oil first, and then we'll talk about the third-party purchases on the shipping side. On the Europeans buying the oil, I think the crude process of displacing Russian oil is well underway. There's still a decent chunk of oil that's going to be unwound by January 19th, which is the cutoff date for the latest cargoes to arrive as long as they've been sold prior to December 5th. So the, the Russian oil, Russian crude into the continent will fade. I think the Russian refined products will keep going as long as it, that product is available, especially through the winter. The, the level of anxiety, the level of needs on the continent are such that they're going to keep buying that product, I think, to a large extent. Come February, that will become a much bigger issue. And we can think about that separately. But basically, that's, that's an unhooking that's going to be more painful versus the crude unhooking that's coming soon that's going to be probably, it's been happening through the past six months at a relatively consistent rate, and it's going to, we're heading for the finish line here. It will be hard, but it won't be as hard as probably the refined product unhooking come February. Now, that said, the other component of the equation is where most of the market uncertainty lives is effectively the debate of one camp being oil will continue to flow there's mm-hmm. there will be buyers uh, for the for the oil that Europe currently buys in Asia whether it's China whether it's India whether it's someone else they'll figure out a way they'll get ships they'll get separate insurance they won't buy under the price cap and that flow will keep running to the other side of the the other camp which looks at it from the bottoms up and looks at the ships and suddenly looks at a trade that's very first of all a trade that's going to require more ships on longer voyage times, on longer routes, so more volumes at sea, longer turnaround times for those vessels to come back. Pretty nebulous European sanctions, which have been progressively ratcheted up over the next few rounds. And now I've gotten to the point where the latest rules are if you're moving a Russian cargo without, outside of the price cap mechanism, Mm-hmm. that vessel would be banned from accessing European services forever in the future. So it's adding kind of a forward-looking restriction on those vessels on a continuous okay. basis, which is quite severe. So the bottoms of view, when you look at it that way, you have a shrinking su- a subset of the fleet that needs to move these. Russia needs to move the same amount of oil, if not more, because you're moving some flows that were going by pipeline into Europe. You need to move more volumes than you were moving before. Mm-hmm. on fewer ships for longer, and you need more ships to do it. So if you think about it from a, from, from a systemic standpoint, and in a tight tanker market, by the way. So if you think back to what happened in the spring, the reason why the flow and everything worked out the way it did, as, or relatively smoothly at least, or more smoothly than people feared, was because, first of all, you had a willing buyer with a lot of headroom in India that took a right. whole million barrels a day from zero. So you had that step change buyer same for turkey by the way that increased significantly so you had those buyers there are they buying today at a price below the implied price cap not below the implied price cap but the argument will be that once the price the sanctions go into effect and the price cap is announced which incidentally has been delayed and delayed and it's getting ever closer to that date so we don't know what that price will be but for the sake of example, if that price is 60 or 65 or $70 a barrel, the argument 
or at least the argument that Western governments and the U.S. are aiming for when they come up with, with this price cap is that even if the sales don't happen formally under the price cap, that price cap is negotiating leverage for other buyers, whether it's India or China, right. to, to push, I mean, basically to tell Russia that if you don't sell it to me at price cap plus $2 or price cap plus $5, good luck finding someone else to buy it. Right. Uh, so you using some of that, it becomes that line in the sand, that negotiating tactic. So as things currently stand, no, the, the discounts are not as severe. They're probably above what the rumored price cap range is. But again, we don't know what the price cap is, is, so we don't know. No, we don't know what that is. So you did have, you had India step in, you had no sanctions on, on anything really in terms of rewiring the trade. And you had a, a pretty loose tanker market more generally coming into mm-hmm. this year, coming off of last year. So you had worked off a lot of the contango floating storage of the 2020 buildup. You had still relatively pressured demand globally, still something you know, below normal demand. So you had enough tanker slack that you managed to rewire that leg of the trade relatively yeah. easily. Now you're going to have to go through a rewiring of as big a magnitude as we did earlier this year. Mm-hmm. With fewer ships, with more restrictions, without the India demand shock absorber at the, mm-hmm. the high end of it. And it just feels, feels, and the numbers tell you that it's a difficult equation to pivot to in short order without without meaningful disruption. And so uh, what, and I, I want to be sensitive of, of our time because okay, we're kind of at the top end here. So, so if we're thinking here, we're in about, what, two and a half weeks away from the December 5th deadline, there's still plus or minus 10 million barrels uh, from Russia coming into the market. How does all of that evaporate on December 5th? Does zero evaporate on December 5th? What what, what should we be thinking about and where it sounds like the risks are to the upside rather than the downside? The risks are to, are to the upside for price, downside for supply. So I would say First of all, let's bracket this risk, the Russian risk a bit better. As long as refined products are flowing and China and India are buying, your floor is relatively sturdy around seven and a half to eight million barrels a day. So that hard floor at the bottom of the range, that's pretty solid, at least in the short term. So you're working from a 10 million barrels a day upside to seven and a half to eight million barrels a day. The real question is whether it's a two and a half million barrels a day, which is the low end of that range disruption, or it's a million barrels or a 500 to a million barrels a day, low end disruption. We'll see. I mean, in the short term, as the refined product van goes into effect, it becomes more challenging because you lose that relief valve into Europe, you lose that refining demand, and suddenly you start it backs up into the refinery gate if you can't find China and India are not necessarily in the market for significant refined product imports. They might recycle products that way. There's going to be questions around whether the Gulf producers, there's been a cargo go from recently from Russia to, to the UAE. Could that be a meaningful relief valve that basically absorbs Russian oil, Russian crude and recycles it basically Gulf producers refining Russian oil in their refineries and exporting more refined domestic crudes from their side. So a lot of questions here still to come. The price cap needs to be announced. The level of enforcement, the level of caution by shippers is going to be interesting to watch through that December 5th timeframe. 
it's going to take a few weeks until we figure out really what we're seeing now before the sanctions go into effect is a scramble to keep loading we've seen high loadings over the past couple of months pretty consistently we're seeing oil at sea increase pretty significantly so you're still in the before the storm phase Mm-hmm. What will be interesting to see is really the three, two, three weeks after the sanctions go into effect on December 5th. And that will be very informative as to which end of the band you're on. I think we're heading into a very choppy physical rewiring process. I, I, I think that the risk is probably more to the downside than upside. So if you think about that range as a call it, the, the range people tend to use, and it's been the same range, by the way, that people have used since the invasion started. It's one to two million barrels a day. I would say that's that kind of that's probably more upside. So you're probably more upside uh, risk or again downside risk to production that would move you closer to kind of that two million and a half to two million barrels a day range rather than the milder disruption. So downside the main risk to thing production, concerns, upside risk to price. Yeah, I mean the, my, my the main concern in our mind going into December and January, especially as this kind of starts, especially the early phases of it is of the combination of Russia's intransigence on using and selling under the price cap, which is going to be limiting from the Russia side. So it's not necessarily buyers that don't want to buy under the price cap. They could probably find buyers that they're willing to. Just Russia is unwilling to sell under the price cap. And then the second is the Russian oil supply chain is getting tremendously longer, tremendously more polluted. Mm -hmm. The ships that are moving the oil are older ships. So you have more exposed to accidents, more difficult to find insurance. You have more choppiness in the trade. And Russia is not an oil system that has a particularly particularly good physical buffers, like storage inventories. Think right. about Saudi Arabia or the US, for example, the two other major exporters of oil now or major producers of oil globally. We have a a huge amount of storage capacity, tank farms at the ports, at key hubs internally. Russia, for the most part, is a just-in-time oil system, if you think about it. It's a system that was geared towards trade with markets that are very close. Pipeline trade to Europe, crude Mm -hmm. flows that take five to ten days to move from the Baltics and the Black Sea to Northwest Europe and the Med and the Mediterranean, respectively. Suddenly, you have to deal with a with a much messier supply chain, longer supply chain, a que- that can get a lot lumpier depending on when buyers come in. You don't have that base load rush kind of European first leg again. Going back to where I started the, the discussion, where we started the discussion today, these are structural shifts, which are very profound and very difficult to quantify, and it's very challenging to understand the ripple effects of each of these changes until they start happening and to some extent this kiddishness some the kind of the restraint from markets in terms of prices the lack of or relative complacency if you want to call it that heading into the winter is partly a complacency that's owing to the complexity, so it's complexity induced. It's like there's so many moving parts. There's so understanding tanker markets is even is even like it's a layer of difficulty on top of the, sure. the, the understand understanding of the sanctions, understanding of the parameters of the EU sanctions, and in trying to read between the lines of what the Indian ministers are saying, the Chinese are saying, what the, where the cargoes are going. So the level of complexity is such that markets are forced into this kind of wait and see position. 
So it'll be very interesting over the next couple of months. Is as the I don't think we're going to get full visibility for a very for a while, at least not until early next year in terms of what's happening, because ships are going to go dark. You're not going to understand what's happening. I mean, we've right. seen this this movie before, so you won't have conclusive answers. But pretty quickly, you'll be able to tell if, even from the demand side, from the arrivals in China and India, the scale of it is different. So think about Iran being what was considered to be this massive disruption with a big rewiring of supply and how much is China taking. You're talking about orders of magnitude that. So you can't obfuscate at that scale. You'll figure out sooner or later what the scale of the of the disruption is. And I think it's going to be uh, an interesting discovery process. Yeah, so so it sounds like it. We, we we need to leave it there for time reasons, but but it sounds like that the whole rewiring of the system is in motion. And given the management, but both in terms of spare capacity at OPEC, spare capacity at SPR releases, that some of those comfort valves are not able to provide as much comfort as they have in the past. And so we're in a period where there's tighter markets, more uncertainty, and a lot of upside risk on price, downside risk on supply. And then as that gets reworked and rewired, trying to understand the implications in real time in a way that we haven't had to worry about previously. Yeah. I mean, if you want to think about it, it's basically you're in a extremely high physical uncertainty environment in terms of the range of supply demand outcomes for global oil market balances. At the same time, you're in an environment where there's clearly a misalignment of the price comfort zones for producers and consumers. So the US, it's clearly, I mean, you saw it from the reaction to the OPEC plus cuts, you clearly have producers and consumers that are not on the same page in terms of right. what price, where, what the price range should be. And that's the source of friction. And the question is whether there can be a middle ground somewhere in between these these two bands, which are currently standing on top, top of each other. Saudi Arabia would like prices closer to where they were before the shale deflation mm-hmm. hit the sector in 2014. And you're closer to that 100 to $120 a barrel world versus the U.S., which wants something like a halfway house, which is going back to what we we're talking about, the floor of $70 a barrel, of a ceiling of maybe $90 a barrel. Uh, so you want a, a lower price environment. And the question is, can there be a middle ground? Maybe. In the meantime, what you have is a misalignment of price ranges. But on top of that, you have very interventionist mm-hmm. postures on both sides. So you have physical uncertainty in the market. On top of it, you have very interventionist supply and demand, and you have low liquidity. You have a lack of hedging. You have kind of financial markets seizing up to some extent, trying to figure out how this process goes next. And going back to where I want to kind of finish where I started, the the kind of free, fungible, and financialized, the three kind of the three Fs, or whatever mm-hmm. you want to call them, free, fungible, and financialized global oil market is coming under a severe, under severe threat and the understanding of how it's going to change. So that's kind of the bottom line here is it's going to have to change through the next several years. That kind of And that process is going to be a process of creative disruption, if you want to think about it. It's destroying and something else is going to come in its stead. Whether Saudi Arabia and the U.S. could find middle ground 
could find a different paradigm. The SPR refill could become, they could figure out a way to organize it differently. Who knows where, where Russia will be by, by the middle of next year and what happens thereafter, what happens on the ground right. militarily, what happens with the global economy. So I think this this is a process that's that's shifting. Clearly, the, the assumptions that were underpinning the market we knew up till last year, up till January of this year, are changing. Europe is no longer going to be importing from Russia. The U.S. is no longer going to be accepting its role as price taker without being interventionist in oil markets. Saudi Arabia might be more aggressive in monetizing its resources than being simply a a stabilizing force in the Mm -hmm. global oil market. So all of these things have lasting power. They have lasting, they're going to have lasting impacts on the sector. And I think that's going to become increasingly important as we go through the winter. I think the, through the winter, the main question is going to be how how the physical market looks. A lot of this, a lot of this process of creative destruction is going to happen in the next six months. Yeah. It's going to happen between December fifth and really the spring. That's how we come out of the spring is going to be pretty critical to how this new market looks. Like. All right. Which also times with the Taylor Swift tour. So maybe people are paying <laughs> exactly. a whole lot more for their Taylor Swift gasoline as they pay $28,000 a ticket to on StubHub to go there. All right, well, Kareem, thank you. And I hope to continue the conversation as we get into sure. that uh, springtime period, if not before. Sure. Yeah, definitely. Let's check it out. Maybe we're the uh, chat in January. All right. So we're kind of, the ban went into effect and we'll see where the chips are starting to fall. Sounds great. Thanks. This podcast contains insights and data copyrighted by S&P Global. To learn more about our solutions or read additional market research, visit us at spglobal.com.